33 of Room of Requirement. We are not including number 32, which was our live podcast, yeah. which unfortunately didn't make it to actual podcast. Yeah, it was lost to history, but I feel like most of our audience was there. Sure. So, you know, thank you for all coming. Yeah, <laughs> it was a fun show. I don't think it'll be our last live show. No, 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 not all. Uh, I think we both like performing for our <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So uh, number 32 was our live show, and now we're to number 33. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a little while since I've seen you, right, man? Yeah, since, yeah, yeah, because it just got on kind of the holidays. Sure. I've uh, been traveling. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, how's, how are the post-holidays treating you? It's good. This is, it's weirdly, this is like the first year I feel just like equipped for winter in some way. Like I'm just. I've seen how you dressed. I wouldn't strongly <laughs> argue against that. I mean, yeah. I mean emotionally. Oh, okay. Right. Not, okay, yeah. perhaps not. Yeah, actual equipment. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years of living here has just finally made me accept winter in the same way that I learned to accept summer in Houston. <laughs> but it's just, You're ready for battle. Yeah, yeah I, just don't care. I just yeah. feel like dead inside about winter now, too. Okay. So, I don't know, I guess I'm a New Yorker. Yeah, Every, everything sucks and there's no nice time. <laughs> uh, it's been a particularly brutal winter, right, I think, right. so far. Right on time, right on time. I got my resources, so sure. I'm fine. Everything's great. I'm right, maybe it, it finally broke you. <laughs> just, maybe I'm just broken. Yeah. Maybe so. Stalingrad. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else going on, like, personally? Like, uh, looking forward to anything in January? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, hopefully getting a new job and yep. uh, I'm, I'm editing this book. So, you know, hopefully getting that out soon. But uh, That's cool. Uh, how about you? How is how is, how is your uh, winter so far? So far, okay. Um, I spent a couple of, like, you just kind of hibernate a little, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, so we spent a couple of weekends in. Um, cooking a lot, uh, but it's been pretty decent actually. Like I, I think my wife in particular was traveling a lot before the year end, um, and so it's nice to just have some time to sort of spend time in, in I guess, nest um, in our apartment. We haven't really actually uh, spent that much time in our apartment, um, at least uh, in the back half of last year. We just didn't spend that. Much yeah, time you were out a bunch, and then yeah, yeah, we traveled a lot, and, and then, yeah, and Angela was in Taiwan for a while, so yeah. Just the two of you, yeah, just cooking and yeah, sharing air. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, I'm actually using the uh, time to like catch up with friends. So I've been really good about trying to schedule out uh, social time. I think so. That's uh, um, that's been important. So and I think people get a little stir crazy. So it's nice uh, to meet up with people. But yeah, nothing really super important to report. Yeah, yeah. How's it? And you, you know, you've been going to keto class pretty regularly. Yeah, uh, it's been uh, going pretty well. I, I, uh, we just uh, had dinner with one of my keto uh, classmates, um, and it's been good. I, I think it's it's like a fun thing. I went through uh, went through like a class on Wednesday that I thought was like really challenging and really fun for me, and I just I'm just struggling again to keep up with like a schedule of work. Um, spending time with my wife, spending time with friends, uh, exercise, um, and I'm also uh, taking classes. So like, it's just it's just a lot to to juggle with. Yeah, I learned at dinner that your favorite thing is to be attacked by multiple people at once. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a special exercise in Aikido uh, that I it's called Rondore. It's, 
chaos, I guess. And the, so people, the exercise is that people come and attack you all at once, and you have to be able to deal with that. And that's kind of my favorite thing in Aikido. It's the only thing that actually has something to do with a fight. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, the rest yeah. is just a spiritual exercise. It feels like Street Fighter. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, yeah, trying to beat you down. Yeah, yeah. You have to move them to the edge of the screen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. And give them a, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that is, that is, yeah, it's one of my fi- favorite exercises. <laughs> Do you like being ganged up on in an argument? Uh, I don't mind it. <laughs> Sometimes one-on-one is just not even challenging. Fair enough. <laughs> well, I'll try to be better in 2018. <laughs> with my rhetorical uh, skills. Nah. Uh, anything else uh, in terms of the personal? Because we like to begin every podcast with talking about what's going on with us personally, just yeah. as a, re- a recognition that politics is often really personal, so... Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would say just generally speaking, I feel punchier and better this That's year awesome. than I did last year. And, you know, I attribute that to the therapeutic aspects of this podcast. And sure. So, you know, I spend a year running like almost every day and That's just, awesome. like, hang out a bunch. And, you know, I stopped smoking. Like, I haven't smoked in a year, you know? Uh, yeah, so it seems like you're doing a lot of good things yeah, for yourself. Yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah. That shit's great. It really yeah. works. It has a cumulative effect. So. That's awesome. Uh, you know, hopefully, I want to. Now that I feel great, I'm going to acquire a lot of new vices this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never want to be too good. Well, yeah, should we move on to politics? Yeah, we're absolutely. Both doing great, fucking fantastic. Thank you very much, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's uh, talk uh, a little bit about politics. You wanted to start this podcast with sort of looking back over 2017. Yeah, yeah, and I guess specifically through the lens of known this. throughout the world as our first year of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> first year, mm-hmm. but a year of our Lord, year yeah, one, really, year one <laughs> of our podcast. Yeah, through the through the lens of this new book that came out, uh, I guess kind of uh, Fire and Fury, which I spent sure. a weekend reading, which gave me a chance to like pour over 2017 again, since that's what the book is about. It's right. A, it's a, the chronological story of 2017 through the lens of the fighting between uh, Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon, and I guess Rance Priebus. Yeah. Uh, and it's a really good book. Everyone should read it. I find it really well written, interesting, and therapeutic. Yeah. Uh, and you don't feel it's a little uh, loose with the facts, or uh, I mean, it, I have edited many political books in my day, and this book felt particularly well edited. Actually, it felt like oh really? Yeah, because it wasn't attempting to to put facts forward in a way that. Uh, a lot of political books do, right? It wasn't like a Bob Woodward or a historical text. What it was is it's reporting what Steve Bannon, Rance Priebus, and Katie Walsh had to say about 2017, you know? Which And it did that, I believe, faithfully. You okay. really get an account of what they thought happened, right? Okay. And how they want to spend the year or, you know, how they thought the year transpired. Right. And I found that fascinating, what they had to say about Trump in, in 2017 and their particular fights. Okay. And what they won and what they lost. So I think the stuff that, so I haven't read the book, but the I've been trying to catch up on all the sort of anecdotes and various clippings I've seen posted on Twitter or on the web. Um, and I feel like there are some interesting things that seem more like impressionistic takeaways from how the, I guess how the inner court is, is, tra- is sort of functioning. Yeah, um, so can you then I guess go through then what you think were some of the salient points of of the book and why you think that it was a was an interesting reflection that seemed to, I guess, uh, just reflect uh, an interesting reflection of what you thought was actually happening inside the inside the White House. Well, twenty seventeen, you know, uh, Trump got a spring internship. Mm-hmm. You know, at, 
as president. Sure. And it was not a good fit. Right. And he was not rehired, essentially. That's kind of the thesis of the book. (laughs) So the idea is that you have a number of factions vying for power. And by power, you mean effectively some way of controlling policy through controlling Trump's last thought, right? Like, I mean, it's it's a very sort of shallow decision-making process and you're attempt is to get in on that last moment of decision uh, making before he issues some sort of proclamation or and maybe changes his mind maybe he doesn't yeah or attempting to interpret the oracular qualities of trump in, in order to say that you understand what he wants better than other people so and then bludgeoning other factions with it okay though he says everything at once and nothing so right. That is a, is a, a blank a, slate for your own policy an, initiatives. An oracle. Yeah. Exactly. But he says it with a lot of anger. Yeah, a lot of anger. A lot I of always willing to blame minorities. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. So, it, the, I mean, the book just kind of goes through the, the various fights that took place in 2017 and the various extreme failures that took place in the Trump administration that we witnessed together and yeah. marveled at and all wondered whether there was a strategy behind or whether there was something. And the short answer is? Not at all. Not like, at all. Not even not a strategy, but often it was far worse than we thought. And what we saw as even like the wins were crafted by, you know, uh, the media and, you know, people calling in favors and, you know, the right. damage control was a triumph in the Trump administration in 2017. But that was the only triumph. Oh, wow. So can we go over, uh, I don't know how well you remember the book, but maybe uh, talk a little bit about I, I was really curious, and I didn't see that much writing about this, at least from whatever excerpts I could grab from, like, Twitter. Uh, can we talk a little bit about, like, the process around Charlottesville? Because it seemed like there was a lot of damage control and, like, after the fact. And uh, just hold it. I, I assume that on the, the inner court was just, like, white-knuckle terror at this point. Yeah, well, at the time, so Charlottesville had taken place right after General Kelly had come on board. Right. Uh, as chief of staff. Mm-hmm. The the firing of the mooch, I guess, the hiring and firing of the mooch was a, a Jared Kushner Ivanka project yeah. that went south because they really liked him and, you know, they thought maybe he would change things up and, you know, be uh, someone who would uh, represent the, their views okay. uh, as New York elites, you know, yeah. as he being one of them. And he really sold them on himself. Okay. And his total and complete catastrophic failure kind of crushed their faction inside the White House. Oh, interesting. Uh, And that was kind of uh, what led to Kelly taking over. And according to the book, anyway, he was informed that he was chief of staff without being asked whether he wanted the job. (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) And then took it kind of grudgingly. Okay. So Charlottesville and its uh, incendiary, you know, turning point nature... Mm -hmm. uh, took place in a, in a time when already the control had kind of been seized by the, the grown-ups, the adults, Tersh yeah. and McMaster and, and Kelly. This would have been Bannon's job right. to go in and keep him from speaking. Okay. Uh, he was not allowed to do this, and he yeah. warned everybody, don't let Trump make a speech about Charlottesville. He won't uh, be able to hide how he really feels. Okay. And he was not listened to. Okay. And so again, but I think this is one of the things that's okay. interesting about the book, right? So Who knows this is telling the truth. Yeah. This so, is what Bannon said. Right? Yeah. So this is what Bannon said about right. himself, right? right? Whereas I think at the reporting at the time was that the reason Bannon got an extra week was because of Charlottesville, yeah. right? Like because he, Trump wanted someone who could talk to the people, in particular the people who were yeah. uh, maybe on the side yeah. of. Uh, 
of I don't know um, racial strife. At least according to the book, the Charlottesville debacle was an attempt on behalf of everybody to do something just slam dunk presidential, which was condemn racists, right? Yeah. At a time when they had killed people, right? Someone, you know, yeah. in the car. And Bannon was like, "This man is not able to do that. You should find another way to address this." And they were like, "But anybody can read from a speech," <laughs> and he could not. He just couldn't do it. <laughs> and they, and after that, Kelly just cut everything off from everybody. All of his, not just Bannon, but his CEO friends in New York any kind of advice he possibly might get from any outside sources and basically just shut down the president completely. Oh, wow. Making him now, I guess the reporting is he works about four-hour days. What uh, does he do during those four hours? He has lunch. Okay. He, he has, he gets Very a, important he gets meal. a praises. Okay. Mike Pompeo tells him what's going on in the world. and That's according to the book. I guess you can yeah. believe it or not, but... Yeah, it, I'm finding, you know, I I think one of the things I th- is problematic, at least in the concept of the book, and I haven't read it yet, is exactly who has the ear of the author, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, if anything, I'm not saying that Steve Bannon is a great strategist or a brilliant genius in terms of political campaigning, but I know he knows how to present himself, yeah. right? And I know he knows how to be his own propaganda machine. So uh, it's curious that uh, he comes off looking... I mean, how does he come off looking in the book? Deranged and ter- <laughs> and a terrible strategist and somebody <laughs> who is basically just a guy. Right. And the book does a lot of reporting on who Steve Bannon is and whether any of the claims he's ever made about himself are true, and he was not able to corroborate very many of them at all. But, uh, you know, with respect to how he made his money or if he made any money, yeah. what his role was in Biosphere 2. Okay. Etc. Etc. Uh, and uh, you can really tell that the main voice of the book is uh, to is 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 really kind of the Republican establishment. So it's it's Katie Walsh and Rance Priebus having their revenge on the Trump administration. Oh, uh, interesting. Uh, since they were kind of blamed for a lot of the problems, right? Uh, that, At least in the beginning. In the beginning, it, it's kind of. Uh, attempting to shed a little light on what they were actually doing while they were in charge and okay. how their uh, attempts were thwarted and then, you know, it was just kind of turned over to the military. Interesting. And so how does this jive with your own sense of what happened in 2017? I mean, it feels pretty right on. Like, I, I don't, you know, I, I never, my sense was, you know, one of the main theses of the book that people, I guess, are taking issue with, and I don't know why they would, is that Trump doesn't read. You know, he does no. not read anything. Right. He can't read I mean, maybe he can technically. Well, he can read, read uh, off a teleprompter, yeah, right? Maybe he can technically read, but he—if you—he cannot like sit down and focus on a document. Right, right it's not a his complex thing. Complex narrative. Yeah. It's not even just not his thing. He just can't do it. It's impossible yeah. for him. No one has found a way to make him sit down and read a thing. Right? Okay. Uh, in which case, how do you have an exa- a president who functions without being able to read? You know, the, it's very inefficient, right? You can't tell somebody something faster than they can read it it's not impossible to have an executive yeah. that functions in such a way i'm just saying our, our particular executive machinery is not set up for that right, right. In, in modern day and age yes this is no reason to yeah it's uh it's 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 a lot of reading the job is right? sure even george w bush prided himself on you know the amount of books he could finish every year and uh, you know that all the documents come in and you just spend an enormous amount of time like sifting through information right uh, and I guess 
corollary. Not only does he not read, he does not like to listen to anybody yeah. saying anything. So all, you have somebody who's not interested in taking in information. Yeah, and he's a very, but, but at the same time has an extraordinary amount of confidence in his own decision-making ability. Yeah, right. When, about the things he's interested in, which is often not, does not jibe with anything that the president has to do for a job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what he's interested in, he's not doing for his job and what he does for a job is not what he's interested in mm. so that kind of throws the gears off the machinery of the presidency pretty quickly and there's really yeah. no way to run things you know he's not interested in policy he's yeah. not really interested in the military he's not in, interested in kind of his own initiatives as far as like ways to execute his own strategies right. right he's not interested in the people of politics he thinks they're all losers and right he's interested in ceos and celebrities right and his own press right yeah. So it, that's the what we've got out of the past year. Yeah. So what is not well, at least I think it seems that the Trump administration is operating on the assumption that a PR win is a win, as opposed to a policy win, right? And I think that's different, or more complicated, or more one-sided than we've seen in the past, right? I think there are definitely Bill Clinton was certainly a a PR hound in a lot of ways. Yeah. But, yeah. I but think there was a there was a there was a way of measuring your the the success of administration based on policy as well right i think the the theory is that a president is someone who is liked and he wanted to be that yeah and it has turned out that that is only you know uh, uh there is a the causality is not the same way yeah, right like it's yeah, not yeah, that they're yeah. liked because they're president <laughs> right they're president yeah. they're president because they're likable yeah or because they've done things to make people like them yeah which you have a lot of power to do as the president. Right. But you have to be able to execute that. So where does that leave us in 2018, right? So there are a couple of things. 2017 was one of transition. Mm -hmm. You, uh, There's no real representative of the establishment Republicans. Nikki Haley. Yeah, but she's only ambassador to the UN. She's certainly not a cabinet position, right? No, but she, at least according <coughs> to the book, during the past year she has become like the... The establishment, and she was never a part of a Washington until right, right. So she has become the establishment Republican that Trump respects and listens to. Oh, really? It seems yeah. like he's also fighting with her as well. Uh, at least according to the book, they really like each other. I mean, she, he she has learned to be deferential and enough, like, right, in order to gain his approval, and she has never attempted to put herself out there as smarter and better than him, and has always kind of done what he told her to do. Okay. Uh, and Interesting. therefore, she has continued in her role. Okay. Uh, whereas everybody else has disappointed him or turned uh, on him in, over the course uh, of And time. speaking of which, uh, so uh, Rex Tillerson, has <laughs> he long for this world? Would you get a feel for that? The, the question is who would go in his place. Right. Uh, at least according to the book, Trump has never and will never sour on Jared Kushner. It is not a thing that has happened. Okay. It, Trump does definitely likes him for Secretary of State, so anybody Jared has to, Kushner, right? So anybody has to be somebody has to be better than Jared Kushner, right? So the uh, the the uh. Bannon, the Bannon choice is Mike Pompeo, who's right. the current CIA director. Sure, partisan into, hack pushed into the into the uh, the the uh, Secretary of State position. At least according to Fire and Fury, Trump views what has happened in the Middle East as a, a startling success. He views the Middle East as a 
as the one like golden light of of the past year, right? Uh, because of Saudi, their the newfound relationship with Saudi Arabia and okay. their 180 billion dollar arms deal that Kushner has brokered, okay, uh, according to Trump, uh, and the the uh, Bin Salman's ascension as the you know person to talk to in the region, uh, the person that Kushner has developed a relationship with. Okay, he sees peace in the Middle East as imminent. Uh, and uh, 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 alliance with Egypt, uh, uh, Israel, and uh, Saudi Arabia against Iran uh, as totally successful. That has happened. Okay. You look incredulous, but I'm just telling you what Fire and Fury has, okay, has to say about it. Uh, I, would, I would say <laughs> politely the jury's the verdict is still out. Right? I would I would agree with you. I don't yeah. think Jared Kushner would make a good Secretary of State. Yeah, <laughs> I think in general his policy has been really shallow and uh, just poorly thought out, yeah. right? I mean, uh, siding with Saudi Arabia certainly is problematic. Uh, signing a billion dollar, multi-billion, hundreds of billions of dollars of arms deal doesn't for a peace make, right? And we're still not really clear what's going to happen with Iran. We'll talk, I think, a little bit about Iran. Yeah. Uh, in a second. Um, if Tillerson goes, I think Nikki Haley would probably move to Secretary of State. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the pillar of support then um, around him. So there was a there was a Republican. Oh, sorry, a House Republican or a establishment Republican faction. There was sort of a, I guess, a family faction, right? And then there was a Bannon Breitbart faction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Breitbart faction is gone. So uh, is the Repu- so I feel like all three factions have been removed. Yeah. yeah, leaving basically just the military. Okay, and, and they're you know civil servants. Okay, uh, there to do a job. Okay, so there's so the, according to the book, there is absolutely there are all all three all three factions have. Uh, How would you possibly succeed if the person you're trying to convince does not read or take in information? There's no way any party could win. Okay. Right? At least the military has a history of dealing with senile generals <laughs> who right. have not been have not been retired yet. Okay, all right. I guess they know how to cashier someone. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, does Steve Miller play a role? Uh, only insofar as he was, you know, uh, instrumental in helping fire Comey, uh, and. I guess the, the dish on Stephen Miller is that he can't write. He writes bullet points, and somebody else is forced to turn his uh, ideas into sparkling prose. Yeah. Uh, right. So that's kind of his role. He is uh, the Sessions Bannon. Uh, he's the intermediary between Sessions and Bannon. Okay. Uh, a Bannonite that was Jeff Sessions' uh Worked for him. Yeah, right, right. He yeah. worked for him when he was in the Senate, right? Yeah, and originally Sessions was Bannon's guy. Okay. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, interesting. So I guess Sessions is still in there, and he's a Bannonite, at, okay. least, at least in... Also state. neutralized. Also neutralized, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure very pissed, by the way, about the Alabama Senate election. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fantastic turn of events. Uh, so I, I was wondering, actually, So I, since we're speaking about Stephen Miller and he's been sort of in the news recently, I, it's interesting to see how much, how much of, um, I guess, popular media goes 
uh, becomes an audience of one. So Stephen mm. Miller basically uh, conducts an interview. I think Lindsey Graham has been issuing press releases that are just there to reach the president. Yeah, well, I mean, Lindsey Graham has an interesting role to play because he's the he's the intermediary between the military and the president, right? Right. So or, I would say Lindsey Graham has never been more powerful. Mm. Wow. Okay. Because I'm sure all the you know he's he, not. I would think he's also an establishment Republican. In establishment way. Republican, but in insofar as that he has an interest, it is in military affairs. Right. right. And he foreign affairs. Yeah. yeah. And is, you know is a uh, former officer. Uh, yeah. Uh, and. Um, you know, proud kind of supporter of the military. Yeah. Sort of the, the, the rights Joe Biden. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's just interesting because in some ways we talk a lot about how the media is dispersed and how there are all these fractured audiences. And so, and one of the great triumphs of Trump is that he's been able to take over Twitter and be able to disseminate disseminate his viewpoint, right? And reach into the various... With diminishing returns. With diminishing returns. Um, But at the same time, it seems like a lot of media revolves around these communiques that are attempts to get Trump's uh, attention, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a very narrow bandwidth that leads into the sort of this information pool of Trump, right? Like it's Fox and Friends. It's a very... It's like very small... It's... um, some Fox television show or another, right? It would be Hannity or Fox and Friends. And so effectively, the only way to communicate to the president, um, if you're not part of the inner court, and maybe especially if you're in the inner court, is to somehow get through. He trusts what's on TV. Right. Right. Yeah, for some reason. Yeah. More than he does so an expert right. in front of him with right. facts. Yeah. Yeah, that absolutely. No yeah. So he is, Yeah. That's his. That's his go-to. That's how he gets his information. Yeah, it's depressing. I mean, I learned a lot from television. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure, I didn't learn everything from television. Yeah, sure. But I learned a lot. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. most people would think that the virtue of being president would be that you would have information no one else would have, right? <laughs> Curated for you by sources that. Hey, I mean, Donald Trump didn't get to where he's at. He is by being most people. That's true. Right. Good point. Yeah, I'm just saying. Uh, so uh, so uh, so this is where we are in 2018. Like right. new new landscape, right? Yeah, it requires and, new strategies. Right, exactly. And so, anything else you want to say about 2017? Looking back, uh, no, just that I I think that my biggest fears definitely did not come true. Okay. Uh, I it was a horrible year for many reasons, and a lot sure. of uh, terrible things happened to a lot of people. People have been terrified to be deported or that they're going to, you know, lose their citizenship. Right. Uh, or they're going to lose their, you know, social security or uh, their tax re- uh, deductions. I mean, there's any number of things that we consider stabilizing forces in America that are in peril. Sure. But at the same time, considering what was proposed or what was the action item of the day going into 20. 17. Right. We can see the that. agenda could have been much, much worse. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I think we were asked this in the live podcast, or what I guess we asked each other, right? So, yeah. what is what happened that you thought was good out mm-hmm. of 2017? Um, and I think you actually had a really good answer was that we stopped looking to the presidency as this like god, god king. Yeah, the Senate's never been more powerful. Yeah, the which, Senate's never been more powerful. And we've sort of walked back the cult of uh, personality around the presidency. And I think that was as much the left's fault as anyone else's, yeah, right? Definitely. Around Obama. I would say it's more the left's fault. Yeah. yeah so now... Kennedy and FDR. Yeah, yeah Clinton to some degree, yeah. right? So we tend to 
we tend to really romanticize our presidents. And so having that kind of pulled back from us, I think is, is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so that's where we are now. We have basically no president. We have a military triumvirate running the country. And uh, at least they're deep thinkers, and two of them are. <laughs> sure. You know, writers. Yeah. Uh, I would say Tillerson as well, you know. He's an engineer, supposedly a really good one. Yeah. Uh, self-taught, you know, worked his way up from sweeping floors to yep. running America's foreign policy. Sure. Uh, sure, you know. I mean, it's good as anything you're going to get from the Trump administration. Sure. Right? Yeah, this, mean, is, this is the best-case scenario. <laughs> right. Things could be worse. <laughs> Things could be way worse. There are darker timelines. But, you know, I don't like this. I think it's also terrible so how what do we do what strategy is going forward sure that's a an excellent question it's a congressional election year so uh that always means interesting things right first of all it means that a lot of new people are going to be in people's faces right right Uh, what do you what do you think what do you think the 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 left's best strategy is for getting back on the board, taking back. Well, I think there's a lot of momentum behind the left at this point, right? So I think you have to understand that we're trying to play a game that allows us to take back territory, almost literally. Um, So that involves appealing to a wider audience, also learning to compromise on certain things, learning to pick out candidates that and support candidates that aren't necessarily the most exciting or play necessarily to who we are, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that they, I think a candidate in order to get funding in some ways has to play this game of appealing to people say in New York or big funding bases while still trying to get elected on the ground in places like, oh, I don't know, even Arkansas, Mm -hmm. right? So how does that, what does that mean in terms of how we think of ourselves as a political party and whether or not we're mature enough to be like, there are values in Arkansas that we need to appeal to as well as my own personal values. And when they don't conflict, that's great, but when they do, how do we how do we sort of unify as a party and 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 gloss over that or not even gloss over that make that make that part of the the party's platform is that we have to have a larger appeal and i think in some ways the democratic party has lost territory over the past 8 years right and they've lost governorships they've lost um state legislatures some of that has to do with gerrymandering but uh and I think that's that's a fair allegation, but some of it has to do with losing their appeal po- in terms of the population. Also, some of it has to do with just structural reasons. That yeah, when demographics your guys in charge, you yeah. don't feel worried and scared. Yeah, and you, no matter how many seats you lose, you still have a whole branch of government. Right. So that's not true for the Democrats any longer. So yeah. everybody's freaked out. There's no power base for the Democratic Party. So. Right. But I think that's going to change. I mean, I would be surprised if it didn't change in some ways. Like, not only I, not only on the national level, but I think also on, on the local level, I think there are all... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a turnaround in the governorships and also state legislatures, right? So you almost turned Virginia's state legislature. That was never a guarantee. Mm-hmm. You may see other ones as well. Um, so I think it's it's interesting to, to contemplate what a wave will look like. Um, I brought this up earlier, though. Uh, a wave without like imposing some sort of ideological unity or some sort of compromise in terms of where we are as uh, a party and a party's platform could be pretty dangerous right so we've won in because they've the republicans have elected this crass troll right 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that the party can go forth and govern and govern in a way that puts forth its policies and puts forth its principles and def- like effect- and deliver effectively on policy. Yeah, I mean, we're starting to see the same fractures with respect to trade and healthcare and education. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see fractures with respect to women, Wi-Fi, and weed, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't... Unless you modify that to, like, net neutrality, right? That's what I mean, you know, like, internet, Wi-Fi. It, oh, wait, right, that, that stuff. Yeah, the whole thing, you know? Like, yeah. Everybody kind of feels the same about it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think you've actually won. I was, I've been skeptical about the whole weed thing until Jeff Sessions ah, came down. Right, yeah, everybody gets pissed, really? right? Yeah, that, yeah, was, yeah. that was a good call of yours, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah people, it's, uh, I think he's lost Colorado Republicans, that's for sure. Yeah, I think Hickenlooper is going to run for president. Yeah, so, I mean, the West... He has face blindness, did you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't. I barely knew that was a real thing. It's it, it's real according to Hickenlooper. Maybe it's, like, the greatest political move of all time. He yeah. doesn't remember you because he has face blindness. Right, 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 right. But does that mean you can recognize voices, though? Yeah, and also he just, like, treats everybody with dignity, as if he knows them already. Oh, okay. All right, that's... <laughs> oh. It just hurts me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, uh, anything else about domestic politics? Cause I wanted to talk, uh, no, no, I no, wanted no. to go further afield. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be an interesting year. We're going to, I mean, I, I think this year you're going to see the doldrums set in for Trump. You know? Yeah. Uh, he's not going to enjoy it as much. It is going to be less of a fun job. I thought it was a miserable job for him. Already, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, she hated it before, but this year he's going to have a lot fewer people to fuck with. Yeah. And that's his chief joy in life is being cruel to people. And he's run out of people to be cruel to. Yeah, uh, interesting. There's not as many. He can hire new people that he can fire later, but he's kind of, the the way that government works is not like a business. Nobody wants to work in the government. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not a good job. People right. do it for other reasons right. than money. And if you shit on them and push them out you have it's easy for a job to go unstaffed right now that's bannon's plan but it's going to be unfun for trump right uh, to have no one to fire mm-hmm. interesting um so let's uh switch gears a little and talk go from domestic politics to talk about something that happened um a couple of weeks ago by now um there were some street protests in iran maybe uh set off by a, a number of things um, but it seems to be, I think, if you believe the New York Times, uh, sort of uh, driven. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Austerity program. Yeah, a, yeah. A, an austerity program. They published a budget that showed how much uh, they had to give to certain factions, especially religious uh, factions and religious causes. Sure. And it ignited um, uh, a protest um, among. Uh, certain groups, uh, working class, uh, rural types that really weren't swept up in the uh, protests uh, seven or eight years ago. So it seems like, uh, so it was an interesting thing. It was, there were pretty large protests, actually. But then there were also counter protests. Um, there were some, there were some uh, uh, reprisals, I think. But in the end, I'm not sure where we are. And it doesn't, we haven't gotten any news, I think, over the past few days. So um, I'm not sure exactly where that leaves us. But it's it allows us to talk a little bit about Iran, which is, I think, a, a really interesting situation. And uh, I've been getting the debate from both sides, right? So the left, uh, 
who want, uh, in general, the people who are pro-Obama, um, which may be its own faction of the left, and then sort of the right, which I think was always suspicious of the Iran deal and wants to point out that somehow the protests themselves are indictments of the Iran deal, which I find strange. Um at best, but I was hoping to, you know, talk to you about it. So, what are your, what are your thoughts on the Iran protests? I think it's an interesting space, right? Yeah, to me, it feels like Iran's LBJ moment, right? Rouhani's a liberal, first of all. He's right. like the the liberal counterpoint to the right in Iran after Ahmadinejad got forced out. Right, right. I mean, he's uh, Rouhani's a reformer. Right, right. I mean, I so, say liberal, a liberal in Iranian terms. Yeah, well, and, and as part of the malocracy, yeah. right? Like, so he's still part of the clerical elite, but he's a reformer within that group of right. people. And people voted him in. With people did vote for him. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so what I mean by LBJ moment is the you know LBJ famously called upon people to kind of rise up to give him space in order to pass civil, civil rights legislation. Right. Mm-hmm. It was and he was, he felt that he had no credibility in kind of delivering this stuff until there was like foment in the streets. He saw right. this as something that would aid him and then, you know, passing, mm-hmm. sending in the National Guard sure. or uh, getting southern states afraid enough to sign on to his mm-hmm. extremely meager civil rights legislation at the time, which was slowly moved up into being pretty robust. But yeah. uh, so it seems to me that, I mean, Rouhani's already kind of, you know, gone out there and spoken about what's been going on. And he's like, he's doing the I feel your pain thing. We really do need to you know, look to new solutions beyond this, like, clerical sure. situation that we have. And, you know, it, seem, it seems to me that these protests are... But then there's the other faction in Iran, right, which is trying to shut down all dissent, you know, protect itself. Sure. And Iran is, and Rani is the avatar of that. He's also having to play that side. Right. As, as far as I see, the needle of the thread is to support both camps, to support the existing Rouhani government while at the same time supporting the protests, giving Rouhani the ability to leverage these protests into further reforms. There's a actually a, a fairly strong impetus to this, and there has been uh, in terms of the economics, right? Mm-hmm. So there's been high inflation. Um, one of the things that didn't turn around quickly, at least as part of the Iran deal, as we framed it, was that the money that was freed up um, from American banks didn't turn around the economy, right? So there's still, um, I think, w- high unemployment. Uh, uh, and again, with inflation, the two things that really... To be fair, we've also made Iran not a great place to... I mean, it's not like we're investing there. It's not like people... Are, yeah, but I, I also think that that's... It's a weird regulatory... I mean, I would not... Yeah. As a business, you'd never know what's We simultaneously happen. still have sanctions on them and we're trying... You know what I mean? Sure. It's, it's a strange dual consciousness. Yeah. Right. But I think also the American government... So the American business community isn't responsible for delivering Iran growth, right? Like, and that's, no, but... So I think this is... It's more interesting in terms of Cuba, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, like, I, the isolation of Cuba, like, that's an economic... That's an economics constraint applied by America, right? So if you ease the, ease up on that, right? Like, okay, now all of a sudden the administration or the regime doesn't get to blame America. Now they're at fault if they're, the economy isn't doing well. But there's no American version of Cuba, i.e. Israel, that we're simultaneously supporting at, right. at, at the you know, zero-sum expense of Cuba. You know, That's that's fair. I mean, yeah, so it's not a perfect analogy. All I'm trying to say is that there have been a, a number of economic trends that have really eroded the pocketbooks of the working class and the poor of Iran, which are were people or classes that were not um, involved with the first uprising or the uh, the arising of 2011, right? I think it was 2011 yeah. uprising, um, and so now it's it's an interesting uh, change. But 
the problem with that is that if it's an economic situation, they will blame Rouhani, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he and the and his one great, I guess, success while in office was getting uh, putting forth the Iran deal. But he has nothing to show in terms of how it's uh, filling people's wallets or filling people's cupboards. I think that's a real failure of a president. So, like, what are you? What is American policy supposed to be? And I think in the end. I think you're right. Like, I mean, you want to support the legitimate government, but you also will absolutely want to give the, them the right to protest. No, but I mean, that comes back to our larger kind of strategy in the region, which is muddled and insane, right? Yeah. Like, what we've been doing in the past year is in no way is isolating Iran at the expense of its, like, ability to grow economically, right? Not only Iran, no. but Qatar as well, right? We've supported... Yeah, that's nonsense. I, I would think Qatar is, is much more of a nonsense play on our part. Yeah. Um, Iran, I think... But they're, a, they're correlated, right? Qatar's Iran's, you know, PR firm. Sure. We've we've c- cut them off at the knees, in which case Iran hasn't been able to use its meager influence in the uh, Sunni world to kind of push for its own economic viability. Right, but I, I also don't want to whitewash what we're talking about in terms of pushing for economic viability. <laughs> I, Iran's not a great place, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they are a absolute uh, sponsor of... Uh, at least regional terrorism um, mm-hmm. through their various uh, puppet organizations and also through their own guard, right? And so one of the things about the protests was that the people were looking at what what during uh, Rouhani had to impose a, a an austerity budget. That's what we were talking about. But in doing so, he also opened up the book. So he actually published what they were spending money on. And this actually sent people into the streets because they were spending so much money on the Revolutionary Guard. Yeah, which is why, to me, it strikes a... Of, of uh, oh, chess, it's chess, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant. I mean, it's yeah. a play. It's like a political play. It's yeah. not like he was like, what? Yeah. yeah, he wanted people to like be upset at these religious institutions, mm-hmm. right? And one of the things that people were chanting was that they were upset that they were th- that Iran was in Syria and then well, Palestine. Yeah, Palestine. <clears throat> um, and so the Revolutionary Guards in Iraq also, uh, but they aren't delivering any sort of prosperity to the people. And I think that's interesting. Like they themselves are, uh, uh, the Iranian people, at least at least some of them, are upset about this sort of adventurism, right? Military adventurism. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting too, right? So this is one of the things that was a, a real criticism of the Iran deal, that whatever money you freed up uh, for Iran would be spent on supporting terrorism. It's not wrong, I think. And I think that's a criticism that you have to admit to. But again, I, but here we have somebody saying, "Hey, let's stop spending so much money on terrorism." Right. Amazing. Right. I mean, I, good deal, Iran. Like, well, I think this that? is this goes back to the analogy of the, yeah. of the Kiba. If you uh, if the government can no longer blame America for withholding all its funds, mm-hmm. then you're going to see what the government does on its own. And as long as it's transparent or forced to be transparent, then the then it gives people a reason to be like, okay, well, if it's not America's fault, it's our own government's fault, and we have to foment change. So I don't see this as an indictment of Barack Obama's policy, and I'm fairly critical about his foreign policy, but I actually don't think that the Iran deal was the worst deal ever. You I mean think. Bob Corker's foreign policy? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, sure, why not? I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, uh, anything else you wanted to say about Iran? Uh, no, I just that it's fascinating development. Yeah. Uh, it's worth following. and Sure. Uh, I... I wish the best for Mr. Rouhani in the face of the Revolutionary Guard, which is notoriously good at chess. So, yeah. Uh, I, as I, well as the protesters themselves, right? Like, oh, of yeah, course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%, uh, you know, 
big fan of dissent. Yeah. Uh, in this case, I mean, they certainly deserve to have their voices heard. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, anything, uh, so I guess uh, we wanted to go to a, a section that we love to call doubling down on defeat, where the Democrats are conspiring to stay out of power forever. <laughs> and I think that there is no better topic to talk about uh, in this section than Oprah 2020. Oh, ugh. This I mean, hurts you. It hurts me so much. <laughs> this hurts. So give me a reason why I shouldn't vote for Oprah 2020. Who's she running against? Donald Trump. You should vote for Oprah in 2020. Okay. <laughs> uh, ben Ben Sass. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe stay home. I don't like the idea of people who are not politicians or lawyers being president. I I mean, one or the other, right? Right. I think. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's, there's something really disappointing about uh, having suffered through a year of a. Effectively, a, a publicity-driven cam- presidential campaign to go through another one, right? Yeah, yeah. Oprah is the better celebrity, sure, but not. I mean, can we not? I mean, uh, I think Oprah is a perfectly fine person, and now is the time to launch a political career. But I, I think it is offensive to launch it right at the presidency. It, it demeans the legacy of Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, <laughs> perhaps. I mean, he was only a junior senator. But, but he, he was also, you know, that was, he'd, he'd held state office before. He'd he held some state office, office, yeah. He'd been a political office. He had a shallow, shallow resume. He was a constitutional law professor and scholar. Yeah. A part of what we're in right now is should not only be a reaction to Trump, but it should mm. be a reaction to the forces of popular culture that brought Trump to where he is, right? So, uh, you know, name recognition above something like, I don't know, accomplishments, right? Ascribing magic powers to the office of the president. Right. Like, as in Oprah could do anything without a sympathetic Congress or an ability to use that Congress. Right, or be able to wield power, right? Yeah. It's it's very different to run an entertainment company, not that she hasn't done so brilliantly. Yeah. Uh, but then to wield executive power, where you have where you have by design competing branches and authority, right? That's different than business by its nature. Yeah, I think everybody's enthusiasm for Oprah should be transferred onto Kamala Harris. Well, you actually claim that Oprah is the stalking horse. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any proof of that, but I mean, it seems likely that this is a stalking horse for uh, a hopeful, joyous, inspiring. California-esque Democrat. Uh, well, the question is whether or not lady. Oprah is smarter than Trump, right? Yeah, she is. So whether or not... So, <laughs> I mean, that's not a question. <laughs> I can say that definitively. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so how does this translate in, in terms of politics? So if she's smarter than Trump, right? And 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 I guess it's the intelligence-to-ego ratio, right? Yeah. Would she love the idea that she's the first woman president second black president that kind of thing i mean maybe maybe she can win maybe you know but maybe she can win in a fair i mean i don't think anybody should be discouraged from attempting to run for president if she can right. win fairly in a democratic primary you know i i would prefer that the democratic primary have st- some substance i think that the democratic primary should be a way of hashing out a lot of policy and dis- Disagreements we have within the yeah, party, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, there's yeah. there are, are certain things. How much do you believe in the secret, for instance? <laughs> <laughs> I want everybody on the record to tell me how much they believe in the secret, <laughs> or just trade policy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, trade policy. That, yeah. So it's not clear that. Uh, uh, whereas I think 
I think in the past, Oprah hasn't necessarily um, opined about different political positions. Where Donald Trump has actually been writing in crazy editorials since day what, since the eighties, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's had certain consistent through threads about how America, no matter what, America is always losing power and ceding powers, and how could you, Ronald Reagan, give in to our enemies? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Oprah is like that. She's always wanted to be, however, sort of a kingmaker. Yeah, she makes Putin cry. I guess I'm in, on board. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, like, she's charming. She's delightful. She's yeah. great. I I think she has a very powerful political voice, right? I um, I think she's a boy. I think she's a powerful political force, right? She's she was a kingmaker when it came yeah. to Barack Obama, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I think that's one of the things that I don't know whether or not she wants to stop being a kingmaker and mm. become the voice itself because I don't know how good she is in terms of thinking about policy or or advocating for a single policy. Say what you will for Trump, at least he was able to boil down political points into something that could appeal to an audience. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if, she, if if Oprah can do that. That's all. I mean, she very well could. Yeah, you know, and and she can deliver a speech, and you know, she can handle herself in a in a in a crowd setting. And right. I don't think she would embarrass us as a you know, uh, as a as a in a foreign policy sense. You know, yeah. probably quite to the contrary. I mean, fuck, maybe you're talking me into it. Maybe Oprah would be a great president. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Why do you want Oprah to be president so bad? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, I do want the presidency where Nikki Haley and uh, uh, Kamala Harris are or duking it out. Yeah, yeah that's us. dream twenty twenty. Like, yeah, that's yeah. me too. That'd be great, right? Yeah. Like just, I think I think it's a possibility for sure. I and mean, and either way, Indians win. <laughs> True, true fact. <laughs> <laughs> but the the love and support and hope that we all feel for Oprah, I feel like, is a good way to kick off. The 2018, you know, fundraising rounds, <laughs> fundraising rounds, yeah. and uh, and excitement for the Democratic races down ticket. Yeah, you know? and, and, and as here's something to say: if we need an avatar for 2018 to take us into the House races, right? Uh, I think Oprah's a great one. Yeah, that's maybe she as, should be head of the DNC. You can't attack her. She represents something kind of universally good, yeah. fabulously. Yeah, uh, and you know. Uh, it would it would heal a pretty broken institution, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think it would keep you know the far left from eating the center left. Yeah, uh, in a time when we really don't need that. Yeah, uh, and just through the charm offensive. Sure. And then if she succeeded there, then maybe her twenty twenty chances would be something we could talk about, right? <laughs> yeah. Get right. get us results in twenty eighteen, Oprah, yeah, and then yeah. we'll see what happens in twenty twenty. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and uh I think on that note, I think it's the end. Um yeah. Thank you guys again for listening. This has been episode 33 of Rumor Requirement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm Kamala Shrow, and with me is my co-host. Miracle Jones. Yeah. Right. And thanks to Kevin Carter for producing our outro music. Yeah.